Section 9 of The Wit and Humor of America, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Rick Cornwall. Our Best Society by Charles William Curtis. If guilt were only gold or sugar candy common sense, what a fine thing our society would be. If to lavish money upon objects to virtue, to wear the most costly dresses, and always to have them cut in the height of the fashion, to build houses thirty feet broad as if they were palaces, to furnish them with all the luxurious devices of Parisian genius, to give superb banquets at which your guests laugh, and which make you miserable, to drive a fine carriage and ape European liveries and crests and coats of arms, to resent the friendly advances of your baker's wife and the lady of your butcher, you being yourself a cobbler's daughter, to talk much of the old families and of your aristocratic foreign friends, to despise labor, to prate of good society, to travesty and parody in every conceivable way a society which we know only in books and by the superficial observation of foreign travel, which arises out of a social organization entirely unknown to us, and which is opposed to our fundamental and essential principles. If all this were fine, what a prodigiously fine society would ours be. This occurred to us upon lately receiving a card of invitation to a brilliant ball. We were quietly ruminating over our evening fire with Disraeli's Wellington speech, all tears in our hands, with the account of a great man's burial and a little man's triumph across the channel. So many great men gone, we mused, and such great crises impending. This democratic movement in Europe, Kossuth and Mazzini waiting for the moment to give the word, the Russian bear watchfully sucking his paws, the Napoleonic Empire, Redivivus, Cuba, and annexation and slavery, California and Australia, and the consequent considerations of political economy. Dear me, explained we, putting on a fresh hodful of coal, we must look a little into the state of parties. As we put down the coal shuttle, there was a knock at the door, and we said, Come in. And in came a neat Alhambra watered envelope, containing the announcement that the Queen of Fashion was at home that evening week. Later in the evening came a friend to smoke a cigar. The card was lying upon the table, and he read it with eagerness. You'll go, of course, said he for you will meet all the best society. Shall we truly, shall we really see the best society of the city, the picked flower of its genius, character, and beauty? What makes the best society of men and women, the noblest specimens of each, of course, the men who mold the time, who refresh our faith in heroism and virtue, who make Plato and Zeno and Shakespeare and all Shakespeare's gentlemen possible gain? The women whose beauty and sweetness and dignity and high accomplishment and grace make us understand the Greek mythology, and weaken our desire to have some glimpse of the most famous women of history. The best society is that in which the virtues are most shining, which is the most charitable, forgiving, long-suffering, modest, and innocent. The best society is, by its very name, that in which there is the least hypocrisy, an insincerity of all kinds, which recoils from and blasts artificiality, which is anxious to be all that it is possible to be, 
and which sternly reprobates all shallow pretense, all coxcombry and foppery, and insists upon simplicity as the infallible characteristic of true worth. That is the best society which comprises the best men and women. Had we recently arrived from the moon, we might, upon hearing that we were to meet the best society, have fancied that we were about to enjoy an opportunity not to be overvalued. But unfortunately, we were not so freshly arrived. We had received other cards, and had perfected our toilet many times to meet the same society, so magnificently described, and had found it the least best of all. Who compose it? Whom shall we meet if we go to this ball? We shall meet three classes of person. First, those who are rich, and who have all the money can buy. Second, those who belong to what are technically called the good old families, because some ancestor was a man of mark in the state or country, or was very rich, and has kept the fortune in the family. And thirdly, a swarm of youths who can dance dexterously, and who are invited for that purpose. Now these are all arbitrary and facetious distinctions upon which to found so profound a social difference as that which exists in American, or at least in New York, society. First, as a general rule, the rich men of every community who make their own money are not the most generally intelligent and cultivated. They have a shrewd talent which secures a fortune, and which keeps them closely at the work of amassing from their youngest years until they are old. They are sturdy men, of simple taste often, sometimes, though rarely, very generous, but necessarily with an altogether false and exaggerated idea of the importance of money. They are a rather rough, unsympathetic, and perhaps selfish class, who themselves despise purple and fine linen, and still prefer a cot bed and a bare room, although they may be worth millions. But they are married to scheming or ambitious or disappointed women, whose life is a prolonged pageant, and they are dragged hither and thither in it, are bled of their golden blood, and forced into a position they do not covet, and which they despise. Then there are the inheritors of wealth. How many of them inherit the valiant genius and hard frugality which built up their fortunes? How many acknowledge the stern and heavy responsibility of their opportunities? How many refuse to dream their lives away in a Siberian luxury? How many are smitten with the lofty ambition of achieving an enduring name by works of a permanent value? How many do not dwindle into dainty dilettanti, and dilute their manhood with facetious sentimentality instead of a hearty human sympathy? How many are not satisfied with having the fastest horses, and the crackest carriages, and an unlimited wardrobe, and a weak affection and puerile imitation of foreign life? And who of these of our secondly, these old families? The spirit of our time and our country knows no such thing, but the habituate of society hears constantly of a good family. It means simply the collective mass of children, grandchildren, nephews, nieces, and descendants of some man who deserved well of his country, and whom his country honors. But sad is the heritage of a great name. The son of Burke will inevitably be measured by Burke. The niece of Pope must show some superiority to other women, so to speak, or her equality is inferiority. The feeling of men attributes some magical charm to blood, and we look to see the daughter of Helen as fair as her mother, and the son of Shakespeare musical as his sire. If they are not so, if they are merely names and common persons, 
if there is no Burke, nor Shakespeare, nor Washington, nor Bacon in their words, or actions, or lives, then we must pity them, and pass gently on, not upbraiding them, but regretting that it is one of the laws of greatness, that it dwindles all things in its vicinity, which would otherwise show large enough. Nay, in our regard for the great man, we may even admit to a compassionate honor, as pensioners upon our charity, those who bear and transmit his name. But if these heirs should presume upon that fame, and claim any precedence of living men and women because their dead grandfather was a hero, they must be shown the door directly. We should dread to be born a Percy, or a Colonna, or a Bonaparte. We should not like to be the second Duke of Wellington, nor Charles Dickens, Jr. It is a terrible thing, one would say, to a mind of honorable feeling, to be pointed out as somebody's son, or uncle, or granddaughter, as if the excellence were all derived. It must be a little humiliating to reflect that if your great-uncle had not been somebody, you would be nobody, that in fact you are only a name, and that if you would consent to change it for the sake of a fortune, as is sometimes done, you would cease to be anything but a rich man. My father was president, or governor of the state, some pompous man may say. But by Jupiter, king of gods and men, what are you? is the instinctive response. Do you not see, our pompous friend, that you are only pointing out your own unimportance? If your father was governor of the state, what right have you to use that fact alone to fatten your self-conceit? Take care, good care, for whether you say it by your lips or by your life, that withering response awaits you. Then what are you? If your ancestor was great, you are under bonds to greatness. If you are small, make haste to learn it betimes, and thanking heaven that your name has been made illustrious, retire into a corner and keep it at least untarnished. Our thirdly is a class made by sundry French tailors, bootmakers, dancing masters, and Mr. Brown. They are a corps de ballet for use of private entertainments. They are fostered by society for the use of young debutantes and hardier damsels, who have dared two or three years of the tight polka. They are cultivated for their heels, not their heads. Their life begins at ten o'clock in the evening, and lasts until four in the morning. They go home and sleep until nine, and then they reel, sleepy, to accounting-houses and offices, and doze on desk until dinner-time. Or, unable to do that, they are actively at work all day, and their cheeks grow pale, and their lips thin, and their eyes bloodshot and hollow, and they drag themselves home at evening to catch a nap until the ball begins, or to dine and smoke at their club, and the very manly with punches and coarse stories, and then to rush into hot and glittering rooms and seize very delicate girls closely around the waist, and dash with them around an area of stretched linen, saying in the panting pauses how very hot it is, how very pretty Miss Podge looks. What a good red -a Are you going to Miss Potiphar's? Is this the assembled flower of manhood and womanhood called best society, and to see which is so envied a privilege? If such are the elements, can we be long in arriving at the present state and necessary future condition of parties? Vanity Fair is peculiarly a picture of modern society, it aims at English follies, but its mark is universal, as the madness is. It is called a satire, but after much diligent reading we cannot discover the satire. A state of society not at all superior to that of Vanity Fair 
is not unknown to our experience, and unless truth-telling be satire, unless the most tragically real portraiture be satire, unless scalding tears of sorrow and the bitter regret of a manly mind over the miserable spectacle of artificiality, wasted powers, misdirected energies, and lost opportunities be satirical, we do not find satire in that sad story. The reader closes it with a grief beyond tears. It leaves a vague apprehension in the mind, as if we should suspect the air to be poisoned. It suggests the terrible thought of the enfeebling of moral power and the deterioration of noble character as a necessary consequence of contact with society. Every man looks suddenly and sharply around him, and accosts himself and his neighbors to ascertain if they are all parties to this corruption. Sentimental youths and maidens upon velvet couches or in calf-bound libraries resolve that it is an insult to human nature, are sure that their velvet and calf-bound friends are not like the dramatis personae of Vanity Fair, and that the drama is therefore hideous and unreal. They should remember what they uniformly and universally forgot, that we are not invited upon the rising of the curtain to behold a cosmorama or picture of the world but a representation of that part of it called Vanity Fair. What its just limits are, how far its poisonous purellus reach, how much of the world's air is tainted by it, is a question which every thoughtful man will ask himself with a shudder, and look sadly around to answer. If the sentimental objectors rally again to the charge, and declare that if we wish to improve the world, its virtuous ambition must be piqued, and stimulated by making the shining heights of the ideal more radiant. We reply that none shall surpass us in honoring the men whose creations of beauty inspire and instruct mankind. But if they benefit the world, it is no less true that a vivid apprehension of the depths into which we are sunken or may sink nerves the soul's courage quite as much as the alluring mirage of the happy heights we may attain. To hold the mirror up to nature, is still the most potent method of shaming sin and strengthening virtue. If Vanity Fair be a satire, what novel of society is not? Are Vivian Gray and Pelham, and the long catalogue of books illustrating English, or the host of Balzac, Sands, Sous, and Dumas, that paint French society, less satires? Nay, if you should catch any dandy in Broadway, or in Pell Mell, or upon the boulevards, this very morning, and write a coldly true history of his life and actions, his doings and undoings, would it not be the most scathing and tremendous satire? If by satire you mean the consuming melancholy of the conviction that the life of that pendant to a mustache is an insult to the possible life of a man. We have read of a hypocrisy so thorough that it was surprised you should think it hypocritical. And we have bitterly thought of the saying, when hearing one mother say of another mother's child, that she had made a good match because the girl was betrothed to a stupid boy whose father was rich. The remark was the key of our social feeling. Let us look at it a little, and first of all let the reader consider the criticism and not the critic. We may like very well in our individual capacity to partake of the delicacies prepared by our hostess's chef. We may not be adverse to pâté and midred objets de gout, and if you caught us in a corner of the next ball, putting away a fair share of dindle troughs, we know you would have at us in a tone of great moral indignation, and wish to know why we sneaked into great houses, eating good suppers, and drinking choice wines, and then went away with an indigestion, 
to write dyspeptic disgust at society. We might reply that it is necessary to know something of a subject before writing about it, and that if a man wished to describe the habits of South Sea Islanders, it is useless to go to Greenland. We might also confess a partiality for pâté, and a tenderness for troughs, and acknowledge that, considering our single absence would not put down extravagant pompous parties, we were not strong enough to let the morsels drop into unappreciating mouths, or we might say that if a man invited us to see his new house, it would not be ungracious nor insulting to his hospitality to point out whatever weak parts we might detect in it, nor to declare our candid conviction that it was built upon wrong principles and could not stand. He might believe us if we had been in the house, but he certainly would not if we had never been seen it. Nor would it be very wise reply on his part, that we might build a better if we didn't like that. We are not fond of David's pictures, but we certainly could never paint half so well, nor of Pope's poetry, but posterity will never hear of our verses. Criticism is not construction, it is observation. If we could surpass in its own way everything which displeased us, we should make short work of it, and instead of showing what fatal blemishes deform our present society, we should present a specimen of perfection directly. We went to the brilliant ball. There was too much of everything, too much light, and eating, and drinking, and dancing, and flirting, and dressing, and feigning, and smirking, and much too many people. Good taste insists first upon fitness. But why had Mrs. Potiphar given this ball? We inquired industriously, and learned it was because she did not give one last year. Is it then essential to do this thing biennially? Inquired we with some trepidation. Certainly, was the bland reply. Our society will forget you. Everybody was unhappy at Mrs. Potiphar, save a few girls and boys who danced violently all the evening. Those who did not dance walked up and down the rooms as well as they could, squeezing by non-dancing ladies, causing them to swear in their hearts, as the brusque broadcloth carried away the light outworks of gauze and gossamer. The dowagers, ranged in solid phalanx, occupied all the chairs and sofas against the wall, and fanned themselves until supper-time, looking at each other's diamonds and criticizing the toilettes of the younger girls, each narrowly watching her peculiar Polly Jane, that she did not betray too much interest in any man who was not of a certain fortune. It is the cold, vulgar truth, madam, nor are we in the slightest degree exaggerating. Elderly gentlemen, twisting single gloves in a very wretched manner, came up and bowed to the dowagers, and smirked, and said it was a pleasant party, and a handsome house, and then clutched their hands behind them, and walked miserably away, looking as affable as possible. And the dowagers made a little fun of the elderly gentlemen among themselves as they walked away. Then came the younger, non-dancing men, a class of the community who wear black cravats and waistcoats, and thrust their thumbs and forefingers in their waistcoat pockets, and are called talking men, some of them are literary, and affect the philosopher, have perhaps written a book or two, and are a small species of lion to very young ladies. Some are of the blasé kind, men who affect the extremest elegance, and are reputed so aristocratic, and who care for nothing in particular, but wish they had not been born gentlemen, in which case they might have escaped ennui. These gentlemen stand with hat in hand, and their coats and trousers are unexceptional, they are the so gentlemanly persons of whom one hears a great deal, but which seems to mean nothing but cleanliness. Vivian Gray and Pelham are the models of their ambition, 
and they succeed in being pendinous. They enjoy the reputation of being very clever and very talented fellows, and smart chaps, but they refrain from proving what is so generously conceded. They are often men of a certain cultivation. They have traveled, many of them spending a year or two in Paris, and a month or two in the rest of Europe. Consequently, they endure society at home with a smile and a shrug, and a graceful superciliousness, which is very engaging. They are perfectly at home, and they rather despise young America, which in the next room is diligently earning its imitation. They prefer to hover about the ladies who did not come out this season, but are a little used to the world, with whom they are upon most friendly terms, and they criticize together very freely all the great events of the great world of fashion. These elegant pendences we saw at Mrs. Potiphar's, but not without a sadness which can hardly be explained. They had been boys once, all of them, fresh and frank-hearted, and full of a noble ambition. They had read and pondered the histories of great men, how they resolved and struggled and achieved. In the pure portrait of genius they had loved and honored noble women, and each young heart was sworn to truth and the service of beauty. Those feelings were chivalric and fair. Those boyish instincts clung to whatever was lovely, and rejected the specious snare, however graceful and elegant. They sailed, new knights, upon that old and endless crusade against hypocrisy and the devil, and they were lost in the luxury of Corinth, nor longer seek the difficult shores beyond. A present smile was worth a future laurel. The ease of the moment was worth immortal tranquillity. They renounced the stern worship of the unknown god, and acknowledge the deities of Athens. But the seal of their shame is their own smile at their early dreams, and the high hopes of their boyhood, their sneering infidelity of simplicity, their skepticism of motives and of men. Youths, whose younger years were fervid with the resolution to strike and win, who deserve at least a gentle remembrance, if not a dazzling fame, are content to eat and drink and sleep well, to go to the opera and all the balls to be known as gentlemanly and aristocratic and dangerous and elegant, to cherish a luxurious and enervating indolence, and to succeed upon that cheap reputation of having been fast in Paris. The end of such men is evident enough from the beginning. They are snuffed out by a great match and became an appendage to a rich woman, or they dwindle off into old ruse, men of the world in sad earnest and not with elegant affection, Blase, and as they began Arthur Pendences, so they end the major. But believe it, that old fossil heart is wrung sometimes by a mortal pang, as it remembers those squandered opportunities in that lost life. From these groups we pass into the dancing room. We have seen dancing in other countries and dressing. We have certainly never seen gentlemen dance so easily, gracefully, and well as the American. But the style of dancing, in its whirl, its rush, its fury, is only equaled by that of the masked balls at the French opera, and the balls at the Salle Valentino, the Jardin Mabille, the Chaute Rouge, and other favorite resorts of Parisian grusettes and lorettes. We saw a few young men looking upon the dance very soberly, and upon inquiry learned that they were engaged to certain ladies of the corps de ballet. Nor did we wonder that the spectacle of a young woman whirling in a decollet state, and in the embrace of a warm youth, around a heated room, induced a little sobriety upon her lover's face, 
if not a sadness in his heart. Amusement, recreation, enjoyment. There are no more beautiful things, but this proceeding falls under another head. We watched the various toilettes of these bounding bells. They were rich and tasteful. But a man at our elbow of experience and shrewd observation said with a sneer, for which we called him to account, I observe that American ladies are so rich in charms that they are not at all chary of them. It is certainly generous to us miserable black coats. But do you know it strikes me as a generosity of display that must necessarily leave the donor poorer in maidenly feeling. We thought ourselves cynical, but this was intolerable, and in a very crisp manner we demanded an apology. Why, responded our friend with more of sadness than of satire in his tone, why are you so exasperated? Look at this scene. Consider that this is really the life of these girls. This is what they come out for. This is the end of their ambition. They think of it, dream of it, long for it. Is it amusement? Yes, to a few, possibly. But listen and gather, if you can, from their remarks, when they make any, that they have any thought beyond this, and going to church very rigidly on Sunday. The vigor of polkaing and church-going are proportioned. As is the one, so is the other. My young friend, I am no aesthetic, and do not suppose a man is damned because he dances. But life is not a ball, more is the pity truly for these butterflies, nor is it sole duty and delight dancing. When I consider this spectacle, when I remember what a noble and beautiful woman is, what a manly man, when I reel, dazzled by this glare, drunken by these perfumes, confused by these alluring music, and reflect upon the enormous sums wasted in a pompous profusion that delights no one, when I look around upon all this rampant vulgarity and tinsel and Brussels lace, and think how fortunes go, how men struggle and lose the bloom of their honesty, how women hide in a smiling pretense, and eye with caustic glances their neighbor's newer house, diamonds or porcelain, and observe their daughters such as these, why, I tremble, tremble, and this scene to-night, every cracked ball this winter, will be not the pleasant society of men and women, but even in this young country, an orgy such as rotting Corinth saw, a frenzied festival of Rome in its decadence. There was a sober truth in this bitterness, and we turned away to escape the somber thought of the moment. Addressing one of the many padding horries who stood melting in a window, we spoke, and confessed how absurdly, of the Dusseldorf gallery. It was merely to avoid saying how warm the room was, and how pleasant the party was, facts upon which we were already enlarged. Yes, they are pretty pictures, but la, how long it must have taken Mr. Dusseldorf to paint them all, was the reply. By the Farnesian Hercules, no Roman sylph in her city's decline would ever have called the sun-god Mr. Apollo. We hoped that Hori melted entirely away in the window, but we certainly did not stay to see. Passing out toward the supper-room, we encountered two young men. What Hal, said one, you at Mrs. Potiphar's? It seems that Hal was a sprig of one of the old families. Well, Joe, said Hal, a little confused, it is a little strange. The fact is, I didn't mean to be here, but I concluded to compromise by coming, and not being introduced to the host. Hal could come, eat Potiphar's supper, drink his wine, spoil his carpets, laugh at his fashionable struggles, and affect the puppyism of a foreign lord, because he disgraced the name of a man who had done some service somewhere, while Potiphar was only an honest man who made a fortune. 
The supper room was a pleasant place. The table was covered with a chaos of supper. Everything sweet and rare and hot and cold, solid and liquid, was there. It was the very apotheosis of gilt gingerbread. There was a universal rush and struggle. The charge of the guards at Waterloo was nothing to it. Jellies, custard, oyster soup, ice cream, wine, and water gushed in profuse cascades over transparent precepts of tule, muslin, gauze, silk, and satin. Clumsy boys tumbled against costly dresses and smeared them with preserves. When clean plates failed, the contents of plates already used were quietly chucked under the table. Heel-taps of champagne were poured into the oyster tureens, or overflowed upon plates to cut clear the glasses. Wine of all kind flowed in torrents, particularly down the throats of very young men, who evidenced their manhood by becoming noisy, troublesome, and disgusting, and were finally either led sick into the hat-room, or carried out of the way drunk. The supper over, the young people, attended by their matrons, descended to the dancing-room for the German. This is a dance commencing usually at midnight or a little after, and continuing indefinitely toward daybreak. The young people were attended by their matrons, who were there to supervise the morals and manners of their charges. To secure the performance of this duty, the young people took good care to sit where the matrons could not see them, nor did they by any chance look toward the quarter in which the matrons sat. In that quarter, through all the varying mazes of the prolonged dance, to two o'clock, to three, to four, sat the bediamonded dowagers, the mothers, the matrons, against nature, against common sense. They babbled with each other, they drowsed, they dozed. Their fans fell listlessly into their laps. In the adjoining room, out of the waking sight, even of the then-sleeping mamas, the daughters whirled in the close embrace of partners who had brought down bottles of champagne from the supper-room, and put them by the side of their chairs for occasional refreshment during the dance. The dizzy hour staggered by. Azalea, you must come now, has been already said a dozen times, but only as by the scribes. Finally it was declared with authority. Azalea went, Amelia, Arabella, the rest followed. There was prolonged cloaking, there were lingering farewells. A few papas were in the supper-room, sitting among the debris of game. A few young non-dancing husbands sat beneath gas, unnaturally bright, reading whatever chance book was at hand, and thinking of the young child at home waiting for Mama, who was dancing the German below. A few exhausted matrons sat in the robing-room, tired, sad, wishing Jane would come up, assailed at intervals by a vague dis suspicion that it was not quite worth while wondering how it was they used to have such good times at balls, yawning and looking at their watches, while the regular beat of the music below with sardonic sadness continued. At last Jane came up, had had the most glorious time, and went down with Mama to the carriage, and so drove home. Even the last Jane went, the last noisy youth was expelled, and Mr. and Mrs. Potiphar, having duly performed their biennial social duty, dismissed the music, ordered the servants to count the spoons, and an hour or two after daylight went to bed. Enviable Mr. and Mrs. Potiphar. We are now prepared for the great moral indignation of the friend who saw us eating our dinned of truths in that remarkable supper-room. We are waiting to hear him say in the most moderate and gentlemanly manner that it is all very well to select flaws and present them as specimens, and to learn from him, possibly with indignant publicity, 
that the present condition of parties is not what we have intimated, or in his quiet and pointed way, he may smile at our fiery assault upon edged flounces and nougat pyramids and the kingdom of Lilliput in general. Yet, after all, and despite the youths who are led out and carried home, or who stumble through the German, this is a sober matter. My friend told us we should see the best society. But he is a prodigious wag. Who makes this country? From whom is his character of unparalleled enterprise, heroism, and success derived? Who have given it its place in the respect and the fear of the world? Who annually recruit its energies, confirm its progresses, and secure its triumph? Who are its characteristic children, the pith, the sinew, the bone of its prosperity? Who found and direct and continue its manifold institutions of mercy and education? Who are essentially Americans? Indignant friend, these classes, whoever they may be, are the best society, because they alone are the representatives of its character and cultivation. They are the best society of New York, of Boston, of Baltimore, of St. Louis, of New Orleans. Whether they live upon six hundred or sixty thousand dollars a year, whether they inhabit princely houses in fashionable streets, which they often do, or not, whether their sons have graduated as Solariuses and the Jardin Mabelle, or have never been out of their father's shops, whether they have the air and style and are so genuinely and so aristocratic, or not, your shoemaker, your lawyer, your butcher, your clergyman, if they are simple and steady, and whether rich or poor, are unseduced by the sirens of extravagance and ruinous display, help make up the best society. For that mystic communion is not composed of the rich, but of the worthy, and is best by its virtues and not by its vices. When Johnson, Burke, Goldsmith, Garrick, Reynolds, and their friends met at a supper in Goldsmith's room, where was the best society in England? When George the Fourth enraged humanity in his treatment of Queen Caroline, who was the first scoundrel in Europe? Pause yet a moment, indignant friend, whose habits and principles would ruin this country as rapidly as it had been made, who are enamored of a puerile imitation of foreign splendors, who strenuously endeavor to craft the questionable points of Parisian society upon our own, who pass a few years in Europe and return skeptical of republicanism and human improvement, longing and sighing for more sharply emphasized social distinctions, who squander with profuse recklessness the hard-earned fortunes of, of their sires, who diligently devote their time to nothing, foolishly and wrongly supposing that a young English nobleman has nothing to do, who in fine evidence by their collective conduct that they regard their Americanism as a misfortune, and are so at the most deadly enemies of their country. None but what our wag facetiously termed the best society. If the reader doubts, let him consider his practical results in any great emporiums of best society. Marriage is there regarded as a luxury, too expensive for any but the sons of rich men or fortunate young men. We once heard an eminent divine assert, and only half in sport, that the rate of living was advancing so incredibly that weddings in his experience were perceptibly diminishing. The reasons might have been many and various, but we all acknowledge the fact. On the other hand, and about the same time, a lovely damsel, ah, Clorianda, whose father was not wealthy, who had no prospective means of support, who could do nothing but polka to perfection, who literally knew almost nothing, 
and who constantly shocked every fairly intelligent person by the glaring ignorance portrayed in her remarks, informed a friend at one of the Saratoga balls, whether he had made haste to meet the best society, that there were not more than three good matches in society. La Dame aux Camilles, Marie du Plessis, was to our fancy a much more feminine and admirable and moral and human person than the adored Quaranda. And yet what she said was a legitimate result of the state of our fashionable society. It worships wealth and the pomp which wealth can purchase more than virtue, genius, or beauty. We may be told that it has always been so in every country, and that the fine society of all lands is as profuse and flashy as our own. We deny it flatly. Neither English nor French nor Italian nor German society is so unspeakably barren as that which is technically called society here. In London and Paris and Vienna and Rome, all the really eminent men and women help make up the mass of society. A party is not a mere ball, but it is a congress of the wit, beauty, and fame of the capital. It is worth while to dress if you shall meet Macaulay, or Hallam, or Guzot, or Thiers, or Landseer, or Delaroche, Mrs. Norton, the Mrs. Berry, Madame Rekheimer, and all the brilliant women and famous foreigners. But why should we desert the pleasant pages of these men and the recorded gossip of these women? to be squeezed flat against the wall while young doe-faced pours oyster-gravy down our shirt-front, and Carolyn Pitoy's wonders at Mr. Dusseldorf's industry. If intelligent people decline to go, you justly remark, it is their own fault. Yes, but if they stay away, it is very certainly their great gain. The elderly people are always neglected with us, and nothing surprises intelligent strangers more than the tyrannical supremacy of young America. But we are not surprised at this neglect. How can we be if we have our eyes open? When Caroline Pitoyes retreats from the floor to the sofa, and instead of a poker, figures at parties as a matron, do you suppose that tough old Joes like ourselves are going to desert the young Caroline upon the floor for Madame Pitoyes upon the sofa? If the pretty young Caroline, with youth, health, freshness, a fine budding form, and wreathe in a semi-transparent haze of flaunced and flowered gauze, is so vapid that we prefer to accost her with our eyes alone, and not with our tongues, is the same Caroline married unto a Madame Pitoyes, and fanning herself upon a sofa, no longer particularly fresh, nor young, nor pretty, and no longer budding, but very fully blown, likely to be fascinating in conversation? We cannot wonder that the whole connection of Pitoyes when advanced to the matron's state, is entirely neglected. Proper homage to age we can all pay at home to our parents and grandparents. Proper respect for some person is best preserved by avoiding their neighborhood. And what, think you, is the influence of this extravagant expense and senseless show upon these young men and women? We can easily discover. It saps their noble ambition, assails their health, lowers their estimate of men and their reverence for women cherishes an eager and aimless rivalry, weakens true feeling, wipes away the bloom of true modesty, and induces an ennui, a satiety, and a kind of dilettante misanthropy, which is the only the more monstrous, because it is undoubtedly real. You shall hear young men of intelligence and cultivation, to whom the unprecedented circumstances of this country offer opportunities of a great and beneficent career, complaining that they were born within this blighted circle, 
regretting that they were not bakers and tallow chandelers, and under no obligation to keep up appearances, deliberately surrendering all the golden possibilities of that future with this country beyond all others holds before them, sighing that they are not rich enough to marry the girls they love, and bitterly upbraiding fortune that they are not millionaires, suffering the vigor of their years to exhale in, in idle wishes and pointless regrets, disgracing their manhood by lying in wait beyond their so gentlemanly and aristocratic manners, until they can pounce upon a fortune and ensnare an heiress into matrimony, and so having dragged their gifts, their horses of the sun, into a service which shames all their native pride and power, they sink in the mire, and their peers and emulators exclaim that they have made a good thing of it. Are these the processes by which a noble race is made and perpetuated? At Miss Potiphar's we heard several pendences longing for a similar luxury, and announcing their firm purpose never to have wives nor houses until they could have them as splendid as jeweled Mrs. Potiphar and her palace thirty feet front. Where were their heads and their hearts and their arms? How looks this craven despondency before the stern virtues of the ages we call dark, when a man is so voluntarily imbecile as to regret he is not rich, if that is what he wants, before he has struck a blow for wealth, or so dastardly as to renounce the prospect of love, because sitting, sighing, in velvet dressing-gown and slippers, he does not see his way clear to ten thousand a year. When young women coughed at Marvel of exceptional style, who with or without a prospective penny, secretly look down upon honest women who struggle for a livelihood, like noble and Christian beings, and as such are rewarded, in whose society a man must forget that he has ever read, thought, or felt, who destroy in the mind the fair ideal of woman which the genius of art and poetry and love their inspire has created. Then it seems to us it is high time that the subject should be regarded not as a matter of breaking butterflies upon the wheel, but as a sad and sober question in whose solution all fathers and mothers and the state itself are interested. When keen observers and men of the world from Europe are amazed and appalled at the giddy whirl and frenzied rush of our society, a society singular in history for the exaggerated prominence it assigns to wealth, irrespective of the talents that amassed it, they and their possessor being usually hustled out of sight, it is not quite time to ponder a little upon the court of Louis the Fourteenth and the merry days of King Charles the Second. Is it not clear that if what our good wag, with caustic irony called best society, were really such, every thoughtful man would read upon Mrs. Potiphar's softly tinted walls the terrible many, many of an eminent destruction? Venice, in her purple prime of luxury, when the famous laws were passed making all gondolas black, that the nobles should not squander fortunes upon them, was not more luxurious than New York today. Our hotels have a superficial splendor, derived from a profusion of gilt and paint, wood and damask, yet in not one of them can the traveler be so quietly comfortable as in an English inn, and nowhere in New York can the stranger procure a dinner at once so neat and elegant and economical as at the scores of cafés in Paris. The fever of display has consumed comfort. A gondola plated with gold was no easier than a black wooden one. We could well spare a little gilt upon the walls for more cleanliness upon the public table. Nor is it worth while to cover the walls with mirrors to reflect a want of comfort. 
one prefers a wooden bench to a greasy velvet cushion, and a sanded floor to a solid and threadbare carpet. An insipid uniformity is the procrustus bed upon which society is stretched. Every new house is the counterpart of every other, with the exception of more guilt if the owner can afford it. The interior arrangement, instead of being characteristic, instead of revealing something of the taste and feelings of the owner, is rigorously conformed to every other interior. The same hollow and tame compliance rules in the intercourse of society. Who dares say precisely what he thinks upon a great topic? What youth ventures to say sharp things of slavery, for instance, at a polite dinner-table? What girls dare wear curls when Martel prescribes puffs or bandeaux? What specimen of young America dares have his trousers loose or wear straps to them? We want individually heroism, and if necessary, an uncompromising persistence in difference. This is the present state of parties. They are widely extravagant, full of senseless display. They are avoided by the pleasant and intelligent, and swarm with reckless regiments of Brown's men. The ends of the earth contribute their choicest pr products to the supper, and there is everything that wealth can purchase, and all the spacious splendor that thirty feet front can afford. They are hot and crowded and glaring. There is a little weak scandal, venomous, not witty, and a stream of weary platitude, mortifying to every sensible person. Will any of our pendennis friends intermit their indignation for a moment, and consider how many good things they have said or heard during the season? If Mr. Potiphar's eyes should chance to fall here, will he reckon the amount of satisfaction and enjoyment be derived from Mrs. Potiphar's ball? And will that lady candidly confess what she gained from it besides weariness and disgust? What elegant sermons we remember to have heard in which the sins and the sinners of Babylon, Jericho, and Gomorrah were scathed with holy indignation. The cloth is very hard upon Cain, and completely routs the erring kings of Judah. The Spanish Inquisition, too, gets frightful knocks, and there is much elegant exhortation to preach the gospel in the interior of Siam. Let it be preached there, and God speed the word, but also let us have a text or two in Broadway in the avenue. The best sermon ever preached upon society, with our, our knowledge, is Vanity Fair. Is the spirit of that story less true of New York than of London? Probably we never see Amelia at our parties, nor Lieutenant George Osborne, nor good gawky Dobbin, nor Mrs. Rebecca Sharp Crawley, nor Old Stein. We are very much pained, of course, that any author could take such dreary views of human nature. We, for our parts, all go to Mr. Potiphar's to refresh our faith in men and their women. Generosity, amiability, a Catholic charity, simplicity, taste, sense, high cultivation, and intelligence distinguish our parties. The statesman seeks their stimulating influence. The literary man, after the day's labor, desires the repose of their elegant conversation. The professional man and the merchant hurry up from town to shuffle off the coil of heavy duty and forget the drudgery of life in the agreeable picture of its amenities and graces presented by Mrs. Potiphar's ball. Is this account of the matter, or Vanity Fair the satire? What are the prospects of any society of which that tale is the true history? There is a picture in the Luxembourg Gallery at Paris, The Decadence of the Romans, which made the fame and fortune of Courture, the painter. It represents an orgy in the court of a temple during the last days of Rome. 
a swarm of revelers occupy the middle of the picture, wreathe in elaborate intricacy of luxurious posture, men and women intermingled, their faces in which the old Roman fire scarcely flickers, brutalized with excess of every kind, their heads of disheveled hair bound with coronals of leaves, while from goblets of an antique grace they drain the fiery torrent which is destroying them. Around the Bacchanalian feasts stand, lofty upon pedestals, the statues of old Rome, looking with marble calmness and the severity of a rebuke beyond words upon the revelers. A youth of boyish grace, with a wreath woven in his tangled hair and with red and drowsy eyes, sits litzless upon one pedestal, while upon another stands a boy insane with drunkenness, and proffering a dripping goblet to the marble mouth of the statue. In the corner of the picture, as if just quitting the court, Rome finally departing, is a group of Romans with careworn brows, and hands raised to their faces in a melancholy meditation. In the foreground of the picture, which is painted with all the sumptuous splendor of Venetian art, is a stately vase, around which hangs a festoon of gorgeous flowers, its end dragging upon the pavement. In the background, between the columns, smiles the blue sky of Italy, the only thing Italian not deteriorated by time. The careful student of this picture, if he had been long in Paris, is some day startled by detecting, especially in the faces of the women represented, a surprising likeness to the women of Paris, and perceives with a thrill of dismay that the models for this picture of decadent human nature are furnished by the very city in which he lives. End of Our Best Society Recorded by Rick Cornwall